Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with technology leaders and some of the most innovative minds in the industry to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they foresee for the future. No topic is off limits, so sit back, relax, and maybe take notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. On this episode of The Future of Tech, we are bringing you part two of our conversation with John Rose, the global CTO of Dell Technologies. This episode picks up where we left off in part one, as John explains some of the key areas that he and his team at Dell believe are on the precipice of change and innovation. On the last episode, Avishai and John dove into the world's infrastructure evolution and bringing networks to the edges. In the final part of this conversation, John dives into how ML and AI will be the next evolution in compute. Enjoy the discussion. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Let's move to the third item because otherwise we'll never cover this. So the third is data. And Dell is primarily an infrastructure company. We are probably the market leader on application. I think EMC's slogan was uh, where data lives. And it does live with us, except we're the layer below where it actually is understood. Yeah. We persisted. In fact, EMC's purpose in life in the early days was to take intrinsically unreliable media drives and turn them into an ultra-reliable, predictable substrate for you to process your data on. <laughs> That's what we did. You know, we made drives reliable at scale, and that turned into a pretty good business. And, uh, you know, and then with VMware, we basically said, we're going to take compute and make it efficient. We're going to make it a compute, a pool of efficient compute, which is what virtualization ultimately did. So we're pretty good at doing those things. We actually think data needs to go through the same evolution, the actual higher order pieces of data. And the reason for that is today we have a lot of data at rest, and that's largely well-defined. Things like the database companies and traditional transaction processing, yep. that's fine. We play in that world. The world's stable. But what's emerging is this idea of data in motion at scale. There is now this idea that you're not going to take all your data, bring it back to some data lake, and then run analytics against it, and then three years later understand what it told you. That's not sufficient anymore. In fact, what you're going to do is you're going to take data that's being generated in real time, and you're going to run it through a data pipeline across an infrastructure that's quite large at incredibly high data rates. And hopefully, you're going to be able to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to determine what it's telling you and then take actions and hopefully take those actions in 30 or 50 or 100 milliseconds. That is a very different problem than building a big data lake. And it requires a whole new set of tools. And obviously, we have tools like Kafka and Spark and Atlas. And there's lots of open source projects in this area. And there's not a major company that I've dealt with in things like automotive for connected cars or banking that are trying to build that next-gen data pipeline. And so the reason we identify it as a growth area for Dell is we're already the place where the data persists. We are likely to be the place where the data is being processed. We're the market leader in servers. We are the leader in virtualization. We are the substrate for compute abstraction on clouds. But what we haven't done as an industry is asked, well, how do we make all that work better when people are actually now building real-time data pipelines at scale, when they're actually connecting from the edge to core to the cloud, and when they actually have to put these things into motion. And so there we have huge opportunities around 
bringing things like domain-specific architectures and accelerators into the compute substrate. You don't need accelerators to build a data lake, but you need accelerators to process, I don't know, terabytes coming in off telemetry streams in real time to get to immediate real-time answers. That's a change in compute architecture that benefits us, that we have to build new products and technology. You also, as you go upstream, you start to realize that the data ultimately does get persisted somewhere, but the upstream environment doesn't necessarily understand that. And if you put the two pieces together, if, for instance, a high-order data system like a Cassandra or Kafka actually worked in conjunction with the underlying infrastructure, it might actually get to a better outcome. We have a lot of activity up in the upstream to kind of do metadata management and data connectivity. But when we look forward, we actually believe that almost all digital enterprises, their big problem with data isn't just having the data or storing the data. It's being able to process it in real time in these data pipelines that now span the public, private, and edge clouds. And that, you know, still a lot of work in front of us as an industry, but for us, we believe we'll play a pretty big role there. And it's now the exercise to navigate, well, where do we start? Where do we play? Where's the best value we can create? But the outcome's really clear. We want to make sure that people can efficiently build these data pipelines at scale and run them over an infrastructure optimized to make them work well. But to an extent, isn't this kind of contradicts what you said earlier about we are an infrastructure player. So now you're like climbing into the AI domain. Now you want to understand the data from the inside. Now you want to play with it a bit. No, we actually don't want to be a vertical application. Nowhere in that discussion did I say, and then we're going to build a healthcare application. We're not doing that. What we do realize is that if you look at the stack of infrastructure, you know, at the very bottom level, there's hardware layers of you know, physical compute, physical networking, physical storage, et cetera. Then you have layers of persistence and application processing, like what VMware does. And then you have, obviously, networking layers. Interestingly enough, the data space I just described is in infrastructure. Databases are part of infrastructure. They're not a vertical application. They are part of the infrastructure platform. We as a company largely didn't play in the legacy data world. We partnered. When you look at the new world, we see the same pattern. There are new tools that will be part of infrastructure and enabled by that infrastructure that are still not specific to a particular outcome. Our job is to enable all real-time data pipelines to have access to the tools they need from the infrastructure. The actual instantiation of them as a specific project that you're going to build for an automotive company or a specific application, that's generally what people do on top of our environment. And a lot of time we help them do that. We're working very closely with a lot of the automobile manufacturers collaboratively as they develop their data pipeline. The reason we're doing it is not to sell an automobile data pipeline, but to learn how to build the infrastructure that makes that really effective and operationally successful. So we actually, it is a change. I would like to understand from the infrastructure perspective, how do you see Kubernetes play in? Do you see it as a real game changer? As many people are saying that Kubernetes are like, is one of the biggest changes that happened to our industry, or do you see it just another technology that is out there? Yeah, I like Kubernetes a lot because I like when we get to a standard. You know, I lived through the early container world. You know, as you mentioned before, I, 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 by the way, a week ago, I stopped being the chairman of the Cloud Foundry Foundation. Now I'm just on the board. For five years since the beginning, I was the chairman. And a week ago, Paul Fazone, who runs cloud native development at VMware, is now the chair. So glad to hand that on to Paul after five years. Very happy with the progress. Kubernetes is just the end state of a big industry shakeout of how do we efficiently and consistently manage containerized workloads. And you remember we had Docker and Mesos and CoreOS. I mean, there's just, and they were all good technologies, but eventually you need a winner. 
And the reality is the industry does well when we settle on something. You know, token ring wasn't the winner. Ethernet was. Okay, we move on. IP is the winner. Let's move on. We could argue that VMware and virtualization, the way VMware does it, has become a de facto winner. It's 80% of the market that seems okay, and it created a lot of inertia. Containers didn't have that. Containers were just chaos. It was impossible to figure out which one to use until two things happened. The first was the Open Container Initiative, which was let's adopt the Docker open source defined framework of creating a container, packaging it, putting it in a repository. And that made at least the thing that was a container standardized. And everybody just adopted that. We're all good. But then we ran into the problem of container orchestration of, well, wait a minute, how do you actually take things out of a repository, put them into production, deal with infrastructure? And that was a huge open debate. Everybody had a good answer, but nobody had the same answer until Kubernetes started to get traction. We got behind it and realized, hey, this is actually the best answer because it at least gets us to consistency. And if we're going to have a vision of building a multi-cloud control plane for the world, container-based code is a huge piece of that. And it would be great if we could actually use a common standard everywhere that the infrastructure is acknowledged. And that's largely what's happened with Kubernetes. Kubernetes is definitely not the end state of the universe. It's just a very good culmination of a very necessary step to say, Code will be delivered in different ways. One of those ways is via containers, and containers need a common standardized orchestration model. Otherwise, it'll be very hard to have compatibility across edges, public and private clouds, and Kubernetes gets us there. So, by the way, we had alternatives. In Cloud Foundry, we have an underlying substrate that isn't Kubernetes that does it. I know, I know. This is one of the reasons that we didn't use it. Well, we made a project decision about a year ago in the foundation called Arini to replace it and put Kubernetes into it. And so True. the same thing with Dell, we went out and bought Heptio, which has a lot of the founders of Kubernetes. And we just said, okay, let's just bet on Kubernetes because if we make this the de facto standard, much like VMware's mechanisms of managing VMs tends to be de facto, then we can get over this debate and get into building out multiple cloud environments for containerized workloads. By the way, what that enables is all kinds of next problems, like for instance, function as a, ser- as a service and serverless generally are dependent True. on a container infrastructure. Yeah. If the container infrastructure isn't standardized, you can't even solve that problem. So the stack needs standardization as we move up it and Kubernetes is a very important standardized layer in the multi-cloud world. So we love it, but let's not overestimate its importance. It's not all cloud, it's not everything, but it's an incredibly important step to get us to move on to the next problems. By the way, the reason I can say that with confidence is the reason Kubernetes existed is not because the technologists wanted to create it. It's because the customers demanded it. If you're a customer and you go in and say, hey, you got five vendors. I, I like you all, but every one of you is telling me I have to implement a different container orchestrator. They're going to tell us to go away, figure out our problems, and come back with one answer. That hasn't happened at function as a service and serverless and low code. It will because that's a very True. useful layer, but it needs to be standardized. So just the normal progression of standardizing networking, standardizing compute, standardizing virtualization, standardizing containers, standardizing functions. And in this case, the difference between the past and the present is the newer places are being standardized as consensus and open source as opposed to traditional standards bodies. So they're just moving faster. Yeah. And you believe that also low code will be standardized? Yeah, I, I kind of use that interchangeably with function as a service or FAS and serverless. That whole area has to be. It isn't today. I can't tell you how it's going to be. I can tell you that when I talk to customers about building low-code applications, they are very nervous because if you use a low-code model, you're basically relying on an infrastructure that's a black box to basically inject most of the programmed functions. 
And so there's not really any portability because most of the code that you are dependent on isn't the code you write. It's part of the platform. And if the platform is inconsistent, like the way you do crypto or the way you process a particular function, so they're, they're looking for ways for us to be able to develop a low-code app and be able to run it on multiple clouds or multiple environments and get the same answer. You can't do that today. Yep. We need to yep. get there. If we don't get there, it will actually slow the adoption of low-code or it'll create incredible work for customers. And history tells us when customers get irritated about the inconsistency of the technical community, we eventually have to go fix that problem. So my prediction is while we've just solved Kubernetes and the container management layer, the next big adventure is let's go do that at the FAS and the serverless and low-code layer because it will add a lot of value to the industry if we don't have everything fragmented between different cloud providers. Okay. So we talked about cloud and data. Let's move to the fourth. Yeah. The fourth is, uh, let's broadly call it AIML. And this one is not a a market. The one thing about AIML versus all the other ones is you can actually articulate a set of vendors and a community and products. AIML is an initiative that I actually started with a company probably five years ago that we made a prediction that said, this is something very big that will disrupt everything. The idea of changing the human machine boundary. And so the way we described it, which was pretty easy, we said, look, historically, the relationship between humans and machines is as follows. Machines do the mechanical repetitive work and humans do the thinking and cognitive work. And that's largely true. Even in the digital world, a spreadsheet or even a HR system is very mechanical. It doesn't make any decisions. It just presents data and does the mechanical work for you. The minute we entered the AI era, which we've been in for a long time, but aggressively accelerated recently, we started to realize that you could actually split up the thinking tasks. You could delegate some of them to a machine. And as soon as that started to happen, we realized this is a big deal because there's all kinds of decisions human beings have to make in all parts of the technology stack that are really not very efficiently done and they're very hard to do. And so we started on a program and today we have an initiative that we call our AI initiative as three programs, AI in, on, and for. And in basically is that we have made a decision that every product we build will use machine intelligence to improve its outcomes, performance, scalability, efficiency, cost by shifting more of the decision-making logic into machine intelligence in those systems. And whether it's our laptops doing power management or application optimization, or our power Mac systems that are doing all of their workload placement and dynamic configuration by a machine intelligence now, it's made a huge difference. Our products are now just much smarter and they're much more effective because of that. The second program is AI On, which said, people are gonna build a lot of workloads that are using machine intelligence algorithms. And those don't use IT the same way. And so that's when we started investing in companies like GraphCore, working with Intel and going through the whole laundry list of domain-specific architectures and the FPGA vendors and the GPU vendors. That's when we built the DSS8440 and the 940XA, which were servers that are kind of interesting designs. They have like two sockets and space for 20 accelerators. You know, why would you need one of those? Well, it turns out if you're running an AI workload, most of the processing of the algorithms is through interfaces like CUDA and OpenCL, and it goes directly into an accelerator, not the Intel processor in many cases. And so we realized there was this shift, and we made a prediction a few years ago that probably four years from now, we predict still that more than half of the MIPS in a data center will be occupied by machine intelligence tasks, not traditional tasks. And you can already see that starting to happen, whether it's image recognition, video processing, advanced analytics and financial services. And so the idea of AI on is let's build specific products and platforms to run AI workloads. 
special types of servers with domain-specific architectures, high-performance storage. Like we have an all-flash version of Isilon that when we put it out there, we're like, why does somebody need a terabyte per second of capacity coming out of a, a NAS cluster? Well, you do if you're shoving it into 100 domain-specific architecture accelerated servers. You have a lot of transactions going on there. And at the same time, we even started to look at the abstraction level, and we bought a company called Bitfusion about a year ago, which basically said in the VMware environment, instead of just virtualizing cores, we could now virtualize accelerators, which is very different from the whole program there. You just intercept function calls like OpenCL and CUDA. And then the third principle of AI strategy was AI4, which said, we have to change every one of our business processes to shift to use machine intelligence to make them more effective. Our testing processes and R&D, our supply chain, our services organization, how we target salespeople. Our portfolio now has specific offerings that if you want to deploy an AI framework based on TensorFlow in your data center or at your edge, you buy specific products. Any company that isn't doing exactly what I just said, smart products, smart platforms or AI platforms and using the technology in your business, you're going to fall behind and you're done. And so that's really a very large item for us. So this is a good segue for me asking you, okay, I'm a CIO or a CTO of a big company. What would be the three most important things that you think I should think about and strategize towards? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, you know, as a CIO is ask yourself, what exactly is your digital business? <laughs> You've been saying that forever, but you still have to answer that question. If you assume that your business, whatever it is, a brick and mortar, you're building steel, you know, steel mill your uh, restaurant, whatever it is, what is the digital element of your business? How can digital and IT technology change what you're doing or disrupt you? And you almost have to do kind of the red team exercise of, if you don't know the answer, ask somebody on the outside to predict where technology when applied to your domain, not your company, but your domain, would create a different outcome. It would make you faster, cheaper, better, different, more appealing access better customers. If you can't answer that question, you can't even start this conversation. The minute you know that then, then the question becomes, okay, well, how do I actually deploy that? How do I make myself a digital business? Where does it need to operate? And that sounds like a very simple question, but most people jumped into the cloud world without thinking about the fact that you're going to run workloads and process data, but this simple question of where was not even contemplated. People just said, oh, the place that I can do it is what's available to me. And that's why we saw this mad rush of applications into the public clouds. We've also seen a mad rush of repatriation because it turned out to not be the most economic place. It was too far away from where the processing has to happen. It crossed a regulatory boundary. And so first you have to say, well, what is my digital business and how can I disrupt my own market or how will it be disrupted by the application of technology? The second question is, where will it be disrupted? Where do I need to exist? And that opens up all kinds of interesting opportunities because it's not just where you put IT, it's if I use technology, maybe I don't need to exist in other places. And then the third question is, how will you execute that digital business? And that becomes a question of what is your core competence? And so this comes down to big questions people ask. Like for instance, many people will say, how I do it is I just want to focus on the outcome. Somebody else has to do it all for me. I will use a third party to do everything. That is very dangerous if the what is you have to be a digital business and an innovator to survive. Because if you give up all the technology and let somebody else do it for you, you will get what everybody else has, which is not differentiable. So we've run into situations where many times, if they really think it through, they realize, huh, now let's take AI for example. I maybe don't need to be the place that owns the infrastructure to build trained models. 
And the reason for that is trained models can be bought. They don't actually have to be built. And a trained model isn't really all that interesting because it's just a model. It just tells you how to know that it's a canoe or a pencil when you're doing image recognition in a store. But then when you ask yourself, well, well, the second part of AI is inferencing, that once I have a trained model and I can detect what people are looking at, well, in my digital business, if I'm a retailer and I'm going to use that capability for fraud detection, and I'm going to do it and have a differentiation by being able to better understand where fraud is happening in my self-checkout lines, for instance, then I suddenly understand that I should invest my energy there. I, I don't want someone else to do that. I'm going to have to deploy that myself, and that's where the secret sauce is. Remember, all AIML projects ultimately culminate with a behavior or an algorithm or a model as it moves into production that is entirely unique to your business. It's a digital representation of how your business is actually working. It's incredibly personal and important. And if you get differentiation in that machine intelligence in the business process of transacting retail or developing drugs or moving people around in a city, you win. And so that third piece of how, which is there are things you don't care about. Like I used to hate it when customers would say, I'm going to build my own Kubernetes. Why? That provides no value. Just buy that. Or I'm going to build my own storage array. But don't do that. That's dumb. It's a waste of time. Buy the storage array. That You can't differentiate at that layer. But when you get into the layer of, I win or lose based on how many transactions I can process per second in my assembly line so that I can get better productivity. Well, in that case, you want to own that architecture. You want to choose what hardware. You want to choose what software. You want to make very specific decisions on inferencing because if you get it right and your factory can process a billion transactions a second or processes per second, and it can get a 5% improvement on productivity or waste over a competitor who maybe says, oh, I don't really care about how it's done. I'm just going to let a third party do it. And they give you the industry norm, which is 5% less performant than if you optimize it. That's... 5% difference in factory production. And trust me, at Dell, if we got 5% improvement on our supply chain, that works out to be $2.5 billion a year of profit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a big deal. But it's these three questions, not the low-level ones. You know, you don't have to debate the technology, but you do have to understand what you're going to be, and you got to understand where you need to be it, and you got to understand what you need to actually do, how you do it what you focus on and what matters that you have to differentiate all the way into the infrastructure stack and the software development. And more importantly, you need to understand where you won't differentiate. And that's where you use off-the-shelf technology. That's where you use service providers. But it's not as cut and dry as, you know, you as a CIO only need to build code and you don't care about infrastructure because code runs on infrastructure. And if two companies build the same code and one of them has a higher performing infrastructure, guess who wins? <laughs> and so sometimes it does matter. But it's that dialogue that has to happen in this new world because you can't just come up with an answer for edge or AI or cloud and get to an answer. You have to think about it holistically around those three dimensions. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So it looks like we won't be able to uh, get the final two areas. But John, thank you so much for coming to the show. It was a pleasure having you. And I feel we could have been uh, talking for hours. Hopefully next time we can talk face to face. Thank you. Absolutely. I look forward to someday being in the same geography. But uh, for now, this is a good example of working in the virtual world. Uh, glad to continue the conversation. Obviously, there's a lot going on at Dell and a lot going on in this industry and plenty to talk about. So appreciate the conversation today. It's good talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.
And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.